Welcome back to Sit, Stay, and Listen. I'm one of your hosts, Sully, here with Zoe and a special guest, Maddie. Maddie is dog mom to Thea, a wonderful, wonderful dog with a job. As you may know, Millie, Zoe's dog, has a job of her own, performing as a service dog. And Thea, well, we'll we'll kind of reveal that later on in the episode. But she's got a really cool role that is not service dog work. But before we jump into all that, we're going to introduce our featured rescue for today. Today is a rescue very close to where I go to school and which you guys will probably hear me talk about a little bit. This rescue is Oconee Humane Society. So this is the Humane Society that services all of Oconee County in South Carolina. They don't receive any federal or state funding. They're purely funded by donations from the community. And there will be a couple dogs that we'll be introducing you to from here. There are a couple dogs right now at Oconee that are heartworm positive, and these are dogs that are going to need a little bit of extra love just because heartworms are something that dogs can beat, but they need a lot of intense treatment to do it. So it makes people a little bit less likely to adopt these dogs after seeing that they're heartworm positive, but they can still be absolutely sweet angels, and there's no reason if you have the financial and time to help these dogs out and bring them home, they can make wonderful members of your family regardless of being heartworm positive. We encourage you to check out Goober, who is an American Bulldog mix, and his adoption fee is very low, maybe because he's heartworm positive, maybe because he's been there a long time, not sure, but got a low adoption fee so that you can focus more of your resources on his treatment once he's adopted. The other dog we'd like y'all to check out is Belle. She's also heartworm positive. She's currently in a foster home. We aren't sure if that's just a temporary foster until she finds a home or if it's a foster for adoption. Again, her adoption fee is very low. She is also a terrier mix, but she is very loving and good with cats. And she would make a wonderful companion if you're willing to put in that extra work with her being heartworm positive. And there are also other dogs available that have reduced adoption fees. And the adoption fees at this Humane Society are not super high anyway. So it's a great option if you're looking for a new friend to add to your family that could really use a home and you don't have a ton of disposable income. So Maddie, would you like to introduce yourself and introduce Thea? I'll start with introducing myself. I am a senior wildlife and fisheries biology student at Clemson University. I have a really cool dog. Her name is Thea, and she actually works as a wildlife detection dog. So this is kind of an interesting sort of sector of the, of the detection dog field that not a whole lot of people have heard about, where these dogs are trained to sniff out biological organisms. So a little bit more about Thea. She is uh, between three and four years old. She's got a whole lot of breeds in her, between Springer Spaniel, Australian Shepherd, Australian Cattle Dog, you name it. It's probably in her at least a little bit. She is obsessed with food, which has made her training super easy. You know, she's taken to it super well. She already loved using her nose. And her current species that she is training on is the eastern box turtle. We're working with a grad student at Clemson with her project, helping her find these turtles to tag them and to look at home range and habitat selection data for this species. That's really cool. Just a little bit more background about you. How did you get into loving dogs and loving like all the stuff that they can do and training them? Yeah, so it really started really from the time people started asking me what I wanted to be when I grew up. 
For the longest time, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I actually started school in the pre-vet track. I was planning to go to vet school, do small animal medicine. Freshman year, um, I just realized that that really wasn't where my heart is. I realized there were a lot of elements to that job that I maybe wasn't the best suited for. So I had a little bit of some soul searching to do while I figured out kind of where I wanted to take it from there. And so I switched into the wildlife biology program at Clemson. And from there, I really didn't have any idea what I wanted to do in wildlife biology. I started taking classes, talking to professors, and just kind of seeing what there was out there for me. And then eventually I started, actually I should back up, I eventually adopted Thea in August of 2020. She was a dog who had a lot of behavioral issues. She was extremely anxious, was labeled dog aggressive, had a lot of fear with strangers. I mean, she was really a problem child in a project. And so I started training her just to get over those hurdles to make her a more comfortable dog, to make it so she could really enjoy her life. And through that, we tried a couple different dog sports. So we put her in agility classes. That wasn't really her thing. We did a good bit of obedience and some, you know, scent work here and there, but I never really put in the effort to really, you know, get her trained up to a super high degree in any of those fields. As I continued in my wildlife biology classes, I eventually came across, I don't remember how or when, about these dogs who are trained to sniff out biological organisms and sniff out different animals and species. And I saw my, my dog in front of me who loved using her nose, who was very smart, very motivated to work. And quite honestly, I just decided one day that that's what she was going to do. So I got some samples of some deer blood. They used to train hunting dogs, and I trained her up on that. And then I started reaching out to potential advisors, potential people to take me on for a project at Clemson. And there was a lot of, you know, walls that were hit. A lot of professors, a lot of researchers didn't want to take me on. They didn't want to take the risk of paying me for something that was not likely to work in their eyes. But then finally, I put my, you know, feelers out there enough and I came across the project that I'm at now. And we can talk about sort of how that training process worked and how I sort of got into it and found myself with success in it as, you know, as we continue talking today. You mentioned that Theo is a rescue dog. Millie also is a rescue dog and also is trained for working as a working dog, as we have stated. So I know the difficulties with training a rescue dog to be a working dog. What did that process look like for you? What hurdles did you have to overcome? What were the main obstacles you had to deal with? Yeah, so I'd say the biggest one, the first thing that comes to mind is really increasing her confidence, working on confidence building with her. When I first adopted her, she was just terrified of the world. She was terrified of automatic doors. She was terrified of cars passing by. She's terrified of other dogs and strangers, and it really just turned her into this sort of shut down shell of a dog. I remember a couple months after getting her, we only then started to see her real personality come through. And then that was when our training could really start, just to get her over that initial hurdle. Um, as far as training her for work as a rescue dog, definitely increasing that confidence building. Something that's super, super important for detection dogs is to be confident in whatever environment you're putting them in. Because if they're scared, if they're nervous, they're simply not going to be able to, to perform to the highest ability. For us, that's working out in forests. So making sure that she's comfortable with, you know, the sounds of the forest, that she's comfortable with the smells of the forest. With, you know, we do encounter people jogging near us. So there might be strangers who come up behind her and jog. She can't be afraid of that. She can't react negatively. As well as handling interactions with other dogs out in the forest while we're looking for turtles. It's definitely been a challenge and is still something we're working on. 
And with that, I know there's a lot of anxiety on the handler when you have a dog who used to be reactive or maybe still have some reactive traits. How have you worked to overcome some of those anxieties that may have instilled themselves on you? That's a great question. And I'm still, I'm still finding out how to get over those anxieties. She has improved so much to where I don't find myself, you know, stressing out every time we go out that we're going to have a negative interaction. I think definitely reminding myself that, you know, my dog's behavior is not a reflection of my training abilities. And I remind myself of how far she's come and that, you know, her maybe growling at another dog, you know, is still leaps and bounds better than her you know, snarling, growling, trying to get a hold of another dog 100 meters away how she used to when when we were uh, first starting training. So just kind of keeping it in perspective of how far we've come and understanding that when it comes down to it, it's normal dog behavior. That's really cool. It's cool that y'all had kind of a similar experience with your two very different dogs, two very different locations and everything. I'm sure that other people can relate to that as well. So You mentioned that Thea is a conservation wildlife detection dog. What exactly does that type of working dog do? So it's a job, but what does that entail? Yeah, so there's quite a few different types of wildlife conservation type detection dogs. So for Thea, and what I'd say probably a good portion of most conservation dogs that you'll see out there are, those are going to be species detection. So those dogs go out in the field and they detect the live species. So as we talked about earlier, Thea detects live box turtles out in the field. There's also some dogs who do bugs, some dogs who do rodent detection, dogs who do bird detection, or they find bird nests. There's also dogs who detect viral or fungal diseases within different plants or animals. I know it's really common for conservation dogs to go out into agricultural operations and see if there's any kind of fungus or bacterial infecting these crops especially if they're, if they're crops that maybe, you know, are much more sensitive to fungal or viral infections. I know that some dogs do the hunting for truffles, like the truffle mushrooms that they can harvest Mm -hmm. for the oils and for cooking. I would assume that that's not really considered like conservation and wildlife detection because it's not for the sake of conserving the environment, but is that a similar type of training where they like go out and find something and let you know it's there? Yeah, it's absolutely very similar. I'd say really the main difference would be as the, the type of detection that the dogs are using. So with Thea, she's mostly an air detection dog, if that makes sense. So she sticks her little nose up in the wind and she uses the directional cues from the air that's around her to track down where the turtle is. Whereas those truffle type detection dogs or wildlife detection dogs who are detecting varied species, they're more ground detection dogs. So they're much more detailed and they keep their nose pretty much in the dirt and they're much more detailed in in where exactly they are rather than following air trails, you know, many, many yards or or, uh, meters. Very interesting. So what specifically does Thea do? So Thea helps me when I go out in the field, she helps me locate and detect eastern box turtles that hopefully have not been detected yet. So what that looks like is I put on Thea's training vest is that's her cue that she is ready to work. I put on her long line or retractable leash, and then I give her her search cue, and I bring her out to the site, and she is released to basically go wherever the scent takes her, and I'll I'll follow her wherever she goes. So as I talked about earlier, she keeps her little nose in the air, she sniffs around, and she follows those scent trails to hopefully find a live box turtle. Now, when she comes upon a box turtle, there's a pretty distinct behavior change when she does catch those scent trails. 
So she'll be uh, running around and around, and then eventually she'll stiffen up and go, you know, start zooming directly towards her uh, her target. And it'll be very, very defined. It's hard to explain, but her body changes, and she's much more focused getting straight to it. She usually starts running pretty fast towards it. And then once she gets to it, this is still being trained, but I'm hoping to get her to a point where she goes directly to the box turtle and stands over it, freezes, and stares while I come over to give her her reinforcement. So reinforcement, is that like a treat or like good job, whatever that dog happens to respond to and enjoys? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for Thea, it's specifically like lots and lots of snacks, high value rewards. But for most conservation and wildlife detection dogs, it's usually going to be toys. Thea is kind of an outlier in that we use food, but her toy drive is pretty extremely low. So she's found much more, much more joy in, in her treats. I saw a documentary about they, I think it, it might be in, Ireland it's I think it's in the UK but I want to say Ireland they have a a team that is supposed to find when uh the pipes burst under underground in yeah, the really yeah. long long pipes and when it's like a pipe in your house you know where it is but when it's a pipe that is buried like six feet under the ground and it's one of you know, it's, they know where it is, but it's a hundred mile stretch and they're not sure where it can be hard for them to tell. So they have these dogs that know how to sniff for the chemicals in the water. Mm -hmm. And whenever they find it, they get to play. And that's what I always think of when I think about Thea. Yeah. That's, I honestly have no idea. I I cannot wrap my head around how they train the dogs to do that. I mean, sniffing out water, that's, you know, that's just the craziest thing, but you know, somehow they did it and they're very, very good at it. So Absolutely. So how, I know you said you're not sure how they train them to smell water. I couldn't even start to imagine that either. But how do you teach a dog to, obviously, if you put a turtle in front of a dog, they probably can figure out what it smells like, and then they can probably identify that smell later. But how do you teach them to communicate that to you and to look for specifically Eastern box turtles, not just every type of turtle, and all of the little intricacies that go into that? Yeah, so there's going to be three or four sort of main core pieces when it comes to wildlife detection training. The first one that I wouldn't even really call a core piece is going to be your target odor acquisition. So that's going to be getting your hands on the odor and being able to show that odor to your dog. And this is something that we really struggled with with the box turtle project because there just weren't enough turtles that we were able to get our hands on to train Thea with because they're, believe it or not, pretty hard to find. They blend in pretty well. So what I did for that was I took cotton swabs and I swabbed all around the turtle's skin and shell as many swabs as I could for every turtle that we came across. And uh, so I had those scent samples. And then when I could, I gave Thea the opportunity to sniff those turtles. And then we started the first sort of core piece of the training, which was the imprinting process. So imprinting, there's a lot to it, but the way that I think about it is just teaching the dog that that odor means it's going to be the greatest day ever. Um, So you present the odor to the dog, you allow them to put their nose on it, to sniff it, and then you give them super high value rewards. So with Thea, that was her jerky treats, and that was hot dogs, and it was pieces of raw meat. For other dogs that might be playing a great game of tug or getting to play with their super special fetch ball, basically whenever they smell that odor, you're classically conditioning it for them to associate it with like the most amazing thing, whatever that may be to them. So that takes up a good portion of the first leg of training. I'd say with Thea, the imprinting really never stops. It's something that does have to keep up throughout training. But after you have your dog imprinted, after they're successfully classically conditioned to the odor, you're going to begin introducing search cues. 
So the way that I did this with Thea was I would have my uh, scent in a jar, my swab in a jar, and I would place it around the house. And then outside that jar, outside that little vessel that had the scent in it, I would sprinkle food around. And so then I would, you know, put her to the side. I would go hide it, sprinkle food around where the scent was, and then I'd give her her search cue. So I would say Thea search, and then she would run around the house and she would, of course, find the food because that was her favorite thing ever. But she was also associating that search cue with finding her special, amazing turtle odor. And so eventually you get that search cue, you're going to increase the distance, duration, and difficulty, which any dog, you know, a lot of dog training people, it's, it's one of our favorite acronyms when it comes to proofing behaviors. Um, so you're going to increase distance, increase duration, and increase difficulty in a way that makes sense to the dog, in a way that is logical and teaches them how to search in the environments that you're going to be exposing them to. And then eventually you're going to bring that to the field. Now, this is the hardest part, definitely. At least it was for Thea, because searching for cotton swabs in a little jar doesn't even begin to compare to finding a live turtle in the field. Um, so it's a lot of just trusting your dog and just hoping that your training is going to work out. So when Thea found her first box turtle, we had been training for about two to three months at that point. She found her first turtle in July of 2022. She found it in a little creek when we were actually just on a walk. I was not expecting to find turtles, but she dragged me down a little embankment and was very cautious and her body was creeping around. And so I just followed her and sure enough, she found a little female Eastern box turtle outside my mom's house. So, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you're going to train and train and train for weeks or months and eventually your dog is going to put it together. Obviously, that was a gross oversimplification of the process, but it's really just a matter of, you know, teaching your dog that that odor is is really the best thing to them and then giving them the tools and giving them the logic and building up brain power to be able to to locate those those odors in the field to retrieve the reinforcement at the end. When I was training Millie, the hardest tasks I ever trained her most likely was other than like basic obedience in all situations and stuff like that was probably to pick up a credit card for me. All of my, when I'm having an anxiety attack, all of my like, I just can't do anything really. So like if I drop anything, she has to be able to pick it up. And I remember I trained her for months and months on that and we were getting nowhere. And then all of a sudden one day I just dropped my credit card and she picked it up. For me, that was the best day ever. Like I, yeah. I realized all my training paid off. How would you describe that feeling when Thea first found her first box turtle, and especially since you weren't even anticipating it? Yeah, it was, I mean, I'm surprised I didn't cry. I saw the turtle <sighs> and I saw her standing over it and looking at me. And the way she looked at me was like, come on, mom, give me my treat. I found it, <laughs> you, you know, silly human. And I just sat there for a moment and I was like, there is no way at this point that she's finding a turtle for me. And so, of course, I just gave her, you know, the best puppy party I could. I gave her all the treats and I told her, you know, I gave her all the pets. And I grabbed the turtle and took it home to continue training. And it kind of hit me on the drive home to back to my mom's house that, you know, this is kind of becoming a reality. That all this training and money that I've put into it at this point was, you know, it was actually worth it. And I wasn't just making this up to feel better about myself. I wasn't making this up. To, you know, make other people think I'm smart or anything that that she has proven herself, even by only finding one turtle at that point, she had proven herself as having working ability. And this kind of was a reality for us. And so I got home. I was had all the adrenaline. It was just such a surreal feeling. And I still get it every time she finds a turtle because, you know, it's just kind of like this feeling of 
accomplishment that we did this together and it's really just very I, it's something that really can't be explained in, until you experience it as as a handler it seems like Millie and and Thea have I mean I know that they're very different dogs and different personalities and they do very different work but it seems like they have some some commonalities between the two or parallel lines in there and they're thinking yeah. they're both like need to have that job really love to do their job one thing I this is just kind of like a fun question but <laughs> one thing that Millie does is when she's like kind of annoyed about having to do a task she'll do it but she'll do it like really sassy like Zoe's credit card example reminded me when Millie doesn't want to pick up a credit card, but she has to because Zoe says she has to, she won't just pick it up and give it to you. She'll like pick it up and throw it at you. <laughs> Does Thea do anything like silly when she's feeling sassy in her work? Yeah, we actually went out earlier this week with the grad student we're working with, and we were able to track some turtles who had some radio transmitters on them. Now, with it being winter, still pretty cold out, all these turtles were actually buried underground in uh, a state called Brumation. And so all these turtles were underground, we were tracking them, and I was just giving Thea the opportunity to sniff them underground to sort of remind her, like, hey, like, we're still, you know, tracking turtles, even though they've been inactive. So we would uncover the turtles ourselves as humans, and then Thea would go over and sniff them, and she would take it upon herself to dig up the turtles, like, hey, you forgot to get this guy out of the ground. (laughs) And so we'd have to remind her, like, hey, we don't dig up turtles, that's, you know, they got to stay underground for a little longer. Yeah, and it's funny that you say that Millie would, like, throw the credit card because I have in the past tried to teach Thea retrievals, and she does the same thing. She will pick it up. She will not put it in my hand. She will throw her little head up in the air and toss her little training dummy across the room as if to say, silly human, you think this is what I want to be doing right now. So (laughs) Millie loves retrievals. It's probably her favorite task. The harder it is to pick it up, though the more likely she is to sass me about it, especially when she's like, I know you don't need me to do this right now. You just want me to. So yeah. why do I have to? And then she'll yeah. be very sassy about it. So one thing she's trained for is to remind Zoe to take her medicine in case she forgets. And she has one task where she gets to get up on one of the chairs that Millie has then kind of decided that means her front paws also get to go on the table to where Zoe's medicine sits. And seeing her do it is like the most frantic thing because she'll run through to under the table and push some of the chairs out the way and then get up on the table and get the medicine. But she's doing her job, but it's just the most like Millie way of doing it to be like oh, the most like, chaotic she'll never possible. She's on the table unless she's getting my medication. Like she doesn't do, she just, when she knows she has a job, she's like, well, I can do whatever I want because I'm doing my job. <laughs> and stuff like that she also has like so how I first started training that task for her she's also very food motivated so I associated it with her breakfast she wasn't allowed to eat her breakfast until she brought me her meds but then like if I left early one day and my dad was wasn't up yet once he got up and got out the shower she would bring my meds to him as well <laughs> because she was like okay now I get second breakfast <laughs> it took a a long while for us to train that part out but <laughs> Millie's a big fan of second breakfast and every single day that I'm here she will tell me she has not been fed and I look her in the eyes and I say Millie I saw you get fed and she'll still she'll still sit there and like cry and act like she's starving yeah he is the same way sometimes we feed her dinner before we start making our human dinner so we'll feed her dinner knowing that we we fed her and then she'll be sitting there begging for our human dinner as if we haven't fed her in in days 
Millie will tell you about how she hasn't eaten in weeks, <laughs> months even. How does wildlife detection um, help people and other animals? I know there's, you know, you're trying to collect this detail and this um, information on where these box turtles are, but how does that aid in the big picture? The main thing, I mean, as you said, it helps us um, identify that data within the box turtle populations, and it does help those box turtle populations. It helps those conservation effort, efforts, helps us understand kind of what they're up to, but it also helps people, believe it or not, in a lot of ways. So uh, there are there was a paper that I read that came out of a study that used Boykin spaniels to detect box turtles, and it was found that dogs were 40 times more efficient than humans at finding box turtles. I mean, that's just that's just insane to me. Like, there were humans that worked for over 300 hours total, and they only got about 20 box turtles. And it only took dogs nine hours to get the same amount of box turtles as humans. So, so that saves people a lot of money. Um, you don't have to pay people to go out and find box turtles. You don't have to spend as much money on transportation, on you know, going out and spending money to, for your for your data collection tools and all of that because you can find the same amount of turtles in a couple days as you will with months, you know, with humans. And then, yeah, it's sort of like, as I touched on earlier, the financial aspect. Right now, the project that I'm doing with my grad student, I'm doing for free, essentially. And that makes me feel really good because it is very expensive to train, raise, and hire a conservation detection dog, especially if you're only raising them for a single project. So to have agencies and to have people like me who are able to go out and are able to work on these projects for free or for very low cost does contribute to science in a very significant way. Because most science projects, you know, people think about science and analysis and these data collection firms, and they think that we have millions of dollars to run around with to collect data. But unfortunately, in the wildlife field, that's not true. Most of our projects are extremely underfunded. And we're pinching pennies to try and get these projects to completion. So using the dogs to save that money for human hours and then also to be able to position myself to do this for free is, is something I don't take lightly. I bet a lot of people at this point are sitting there thinking, that sounds so cool. How can I do something like this with my dog if they have a dog similar to Thea? So obviously there's like a ton of training involved and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. that aside... How do you even get into a position where this becomes an option? So I was, I'd say I probably took like a very standard path as far as being a conservation detection handler. I am a wildlife biology student, so I do have a good bit of connections already. And I do have prior dog training experience with my pet dogs at home. And then, you know, working with Thea before she she became a, a detection dog. But really the biggest thing that I would say is just like make connections, make connections with local researchers. Even if you're not a student or a worker at a university, reach out to them. If you think that you can help, even just having a couple emails exchanged, at least you'll be in their inbox and you'll have a history built up. And then don't forget the power of, of online connections. I have learned an extreme, probably 90% of what I know about detection dog training from people who I've made connections with online. Sophia does have an Instagram and I connect with other conservation detection dog handlers um, and other regular detection handlers and the amount of data that people will give you for free just for being kind to them, for working with them, for giving them advice and exchange is, you know, it's such a valuable resource. At the beginning of my training career, all of my resources I found online pretty much for free from other handlers who are either in my situation or have been in my situation and just wanted to connect with people. So 
being able to utilize that is immensely helpful. People don't realize how, how many people are out there wanting to help. But if you just reach out, a lot of times you will find people. I'm not yeah. a, a, a dog trainer. I taught Sped could get do a high five, but you know, <laughs> but I can say I've written a lot of like big research papers and you have to remember that if you're if you're finding research, especially if you just go to like Google Scholar and find scientific articles about what you're interested in online and you read them, it's important to remember and come from the perspective that these people wrote these articles and did these studies about things that they really care about. Most researchers are not making crazy amounts of money for doing their research. They're doing it because they care about what they're researching. And if you reach out to them, and typically it's pretty easy to find some sort of way to reach out to these people. If it's not in the article, their affiliation with some sort of program is in the article and you can find their contact through that program. And if you reach out to them, they are, if it's an article that is not available for free, they are often willing and able to help you get that article, get access to it. And if it is one that's available for free, they're usually more than happy to just discuss it with you because they really care about what they're doing and they care about what you can do with their research. A lot of these people just really want somebody to care about the research they're doing as much as they do. So it can never hurt to send a couple emails to a few people and see who responds. In my history with research, I've gotten on a lot of calls with a lot of scholars around the world. I talked to one guy in Germany, which was like one of the coolest phone calls I ever had about what I was researching, just about his perspective on it. And it's really great to not just read an article and think, how does this apply to me? But to actually talk to the person who wrote the article about their insights and the stuff that didn't get put in the article, but still cool to learn and how they think it could apply to your situation. So never underestimate connections and never underestimate the amount that people want to connect with you just because they've never heard of you before. If you express interest in the same things, they might want to connect with you as well. Yeah, absolutely. One thing as far as getting started that I wanted to touch on was, at least in the detection field, how many resources are behind paywalls and how expensive some of that, those resources can be. The amount of, I mean, obviously dog training, if you're going to a trainer, if you're paying a trainer, is, is going to be significantly expensive because you are paying for their time and expertise. But even for online modules where you're not directly interacting with a trainer or even just books and, you know, pamphlets, you know, explaining training philosophies and whatnot, that can get very expensive. And so it's definitely worth reaching out to people. Quite often people will share share their experience. If they paid for it, they'll, they'll share what they learned from it with you. Be careful with where you put your money because in the dog training world, there's a lot of, a lot of unfortunate content that's being, being spread for, for large amounts of money. We've talked about this before and Zoe, Zoe agrees. Always use the free evaluation because mm -hmm. a lot of people offer those. And yes. a lot of the people that actually offer them are the ones who are really good trainers that are in it for the right reasons. And they're often willing to talk to you about your dog, even without the promise that you'll come back for one of their paid services. So if you find somebody with free evaluations, don't feel bad taking them up on it. Yeah, for sure. So say that you've you've done it. You have had your Thea finds a box turtle on a walk when she wasn't supposed to a moment. <laughs> and you're like, oh, my God, she did it. What do you do from there? So like your dog can like do this amazing, crazy thing, but then 
how do you actually get involved with a project like you are with yours? I would say the biggest thing is sort of don't get a big head about it. Remember that your dog finding one box turtle or one, you know, whatever it is that you're searching for does not mean that they're fully trained. He has been doing this since last summer, and I would not consider her fully trained in the slightest. She is still very much in training. So definitely keep training and then just, you know, keep keep working with the team that you're working with for whatever whatever species you're detecting. Keep putting yourself out there and understand that there's going to be a lot of times when you go out to search for, for whatever you're searching for and your dog's not going to find a single thing. Even if you know that they're there, even if you know that, you know, even if you might have, you might have seen them with your human eyes and your dog walked right past it, expect for things to not go to plan because your dog still has a lot of learning to do. And there's a lot of scent dynamics is a, would be a whole different conversation but there's a lot that goes on with with odor that humans you know we can't even comprehend what dogs are are understanding so you know there's a lot to it be gracious with your dog continue showing up to those surveys keep showing up to the team that you're working with and just keep working with a dog because eventually it'll turn out you know that your dog will start catching on and with Thea it was you know she found her first box turtle and then she didn't find any for like a month and a half after that. I thought that it was a fluke. I thought, oh my gosh, she just happened to find this one. This is all, you know, a failure. And then she found like three within two weeks, like within a two week period, she found three. So it's very unpredictable. Don't get discouraged. Keep training, keep using your scent samples, keep swabbing your turtles or whatever you're looking for. And understand that it is a process and it is a slow process that has to be done with grace it has to be done respectfully to the dog, but also something that you have to be very honest about with your progress, not only with the team you're working with, but with yourself. If you kind of don't do something for a while, you can't really expect your dog to do it perfectly the next time. So I would imagine that's something that applies to your field as well. Say your project ends, or like you were saying, when the turtles are buried underground and it's not really the time to go find them, is it still important to get out there and make sure that in some way or another she's still doing this task so that she doesn't forget how to do it or get kind of like rough around the edges on how to do it. Yeah, so we definitely, over this winter as they've been underground, we definitely cut back on our training. We were not doing as many surveys as we did before or even as many you know training sessions at home or anything. But it is important to keep that imprinting process up with your dog to just continually remind them, hey, turtle odor means you're going to have the greatest day ever. Like, definitely keep your nose out for it. And then just kind of keeping it up at home as best you can. And then, you know, once once the uh, season comes around where you can begin searching again, you can begin adding those increased distance, duration, and uh, difficulty elements. And then from there, it shouldn't take more than a couple of weeks for your dog to reacclimate to the, to the level of efficiency that they were before. But definitely don't expect the dog to just jump right back into it. There is a process because classical conditioning does wear off a little bit over time. So you just have to remind your dog, like, hey, this is what we're doing. This is how you get your amazing treats, balls, fetch, whatever. Just remember, even if they're acting as a replacement for equipment, they're not equipment. They're still living beings, so they're going to forget. They're going to need to grow. You're going to have to be patient. And you're going to have to be patient with yourself because you're also not a dog training machine you're a person and you're yeah. doing the best that you can and sometimes your dog's going to drive you crazy and other times you're going to do- drive your dog crazy mm-hmm. and <laughs> just remember to be patient with yourself and your dog I know we've talked about this on the podcast before but the training never ends they might be classified as fully trained but 
that only means that they are successful, not that you can stop with the training now. You still have to continue that process. You have to continue upholding what you were doing before until they retire, pretty much. And that can be really overwhelming for certain people, but it's the truth of having a dog that replaces equipment or is a working dog in general. Even if they are immaculate at what they do, you're going to have to continue working with them. And that goes for all working dogs. So it's important to remember that and to remember that training isn't linear either. I tell everyone that, like you said, it was months after she found her first box turtle that she found another. And that doesn't mean that the training wasn't working, but you might take three steps forward and then two back. And then you have to regain that stance where you were before to be able to keep continuing but that doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It just means that she's a living being. I know I struggle with that a lot because I want to say we progress to here. Why aren't we still here? But sometimes we have to take a few steps back. We definitely feel that with the, uh, you know, especially with her still struggling a bit with nervousness and with confidence at times. There are times when not only with her uh, detection dog training, but just in, in life that she'll have like this reactive outburst at something that she hasn't done in months or over a year. And we're like, hey, where did this even come from? And who knows what it was? It could have been any number of things. But just remembering that she's she has bad days, too, and days that she doesn't want to deal with the world. And honestly, same. So. <laughs> so at the very beginning of this episode, you mentioned that finding someone to work with might be very difficult. I know finding clients at my age and with my lack of experience almost can be very difficult. Is this more because of Thea being a rescue and not the iconic, you know, working dog, purebred, or is it more of something that you just look inexperienced and then people aren't trusting of your ability? I definitely say that it's definitely people see me and they see my general lack of experience in this field. We actually did have a project that I was trying to get on with another species and that's pretty endangered in the upstate area. And I talked to a researcher at Clemson about it and I sort of explained like, hey, Thea's really great at box turtles. I think she'd be great for this other, it was a small carnivore project. And he was very kind, but he said, hey, we've tried it with other dogs in the past. We've tried it with other handlers. And I just don't think that it works with dogs. I don't think that this is something that is realistic for for you to take on. At that moment, I kind of took it a little bit personal. I kind of thought like, hey, he doesn't think I can do it as a person. He doesn't think Thea is good enough. But it, it really wasn't that. It was that project. The more I thought about it, that, that was a species that's extremely endangered. And we would have been looking for their scat, meaning their poop. And if there's only a couple of them in the upstate, it could be very possible that Thea would never find a single sample. So there are some projects where it simply doesn't make logical sense to bring a dog on. And so that's kind of one one hurdle to get over. And then sort of as I touched on earlier, just like the personal aspect, you know, this is my first project. The Box Turtle Project is my first one with Thea. And we're still very much in the learning curve of it. And, you know, I don't have a whole lot to show for it yet. She's found numerous turtles, but she's not published. You know, she's not some amazing, super friendly dog that we can go and do outreach with. She's a little bit weird and a little bit <laughs> strange. So people meet her and they think, oh, she's not super friendly and she's standoffish and the owner's a little bit awkward and doesn't have a whole lot of experience. Why would I take a risk for my project, which I'm putting thousands of dollars into, 
to have it potentially have my time wasted by by this dog and human team. So that's kind of what it comes down to is finding a project that that's willing to take that risk with you as as a handler as well as a project that that needs a dog to begin with. Not not all projects need need detection dogs and that's you know that's that's just part of the process is is understanding that finding a project and finding a team is it's kind of like finding a needle in a haystack. So. Right. Yeah, no, I understand that. And the service dog community, we have a lot of breed discrimination, which I know is everywhere, but we also have breed favoritism. So like Millie looks like she's just a purebred yellow lab. So -hmm. it's very easy with me and her. I don't get as many access issues as some people, but then when you bring in any black dog, any dog that isn't an iconic service dog, you get a lot of that, those more difficulties, especially if they're a mutt of some sort or a smaller dog. And so I don't necessarily see how that's reflected in your field, but I understand that sometimes you just don't look the part, even if you're overly qualified and that can be a very difficult hurdle. Yeah, and the actually it's kind of the pretty much exact opposite in the uh, conservation field. There's a lot of really great organizations that exclusively use rescue dogs and use rescue mutts as as detection dogs. So sort of this idea of the people who are familiar in that industry, the idea of a mutt who came from a shelter who does have behavioral issues, it's not foreign at all. Now, of course, there are still going to be your your people who are very elitist about their Dutch shepherds and German shepherds who are you know, these high strung, amazing super driven working dogs, but realistically that's that's really not necessarily a deciding factor in what makes a good a good detection dog. And people right. recognize that, which which is definitely, you know, something I appreciate. No, that is good. There are definitely strides being made in the service dog community as well for that. A lot mm-hmm. of not a lot, but there are a few programs that use rescue dogs. It is just much harder to find yeah. a dog that is prepared to be a service dog so it's a lot easier to discriminate in that field mm-hmm. I guess but I am very happy to hear that there are a lot of rescues in the detection field and I've, I've been seeing a lot more just over the last couple of years a lot more um Instagram service dog accounts with with your yeah. you know not not so typical breeds mm-hmm. you know little I, there's one I don't think I follow him but he's a little cavalier the cutest little dog super amazing but totally no one would ever expect right. when I think of a service dog, a little cavalier spaniel. But you know, I, th- I think that community is definitely moving in the right direction, or at least I hope so. A lot of the people that I see with service dogs around college are people like Zoe who have a rescue dog and realized that it had a working drive and also needed a service dog. So they trained Mm it. And a lot of them have pit bulls because a lot of them just went to like a rescue and got a dog. And it makes me really happy, but also really sad to see it because pit bulls are, as many of you probably already know, one of the hardest breeds to get adopted out from shelters and one of the most common breeds in shelters, if not the most common, depending on your area they're hard to get adopted out. So I love seeing them in homes and I love seeing them doing work, but I also worry and I feel bad for those people sometimes, not because they have a pit bull who's a service dog. I'm sure their dog's amazing, but because I know how much people just are jerks about service dogs and about saying that you're faking your service dog when you're not. Like I know Zoe gets that sometimes, even though her dog looks like the normal service dog. So I can only imagine how much those people 
here they're young they're a college student which is already like a class of people that a lot of people don't really trust to like make the right decision sometimes and then they're also with this not classical service dog and a dog that already has that stigma against it and I always wonder how many of them get questions about that's not a real service dog why are you bringing it in here when it actually is a very well-trained service dog and they do need it and it's doing its job and it's a great pairing but the fact that I see a lot of those people around campus also makes me happy knowing that as our generation gets older, there's more and more people that are rescuing dogs and giving them jobs rather than trying to find the best of the best breeder to get a dog to train to do the same thing. Not that all breeders are bad, but just that rescues can do it too. Yeah, absolutely. Put trust in your dog put trust in your training and it'll all work out somehow in the end. So you guys will be able to find Thea and I on her Instagram, which I did mention briefly earlier. Her Instagram, I post mostly on my stories, but I do post actual posts every so often. So you'll find her at T-H-E-I-A-S-G-R-A-M on Instagram. We don't use YouTube or Twitter, so Instagram is the best way to find us. Feel free to DM me to comment on our posts. I would be happy to talk to anyone about anything. It's a super cool field. I would love to get people more, you know, more interested in it, just to raise awareness of, of what these awesome dogs do. So, All right, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you for listening. And if you have any questions, please reach out to one of us. We have an email linked in our description. And like Maddie said, you can DM her on Instagram. So thank you.